Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start reading from verse 38 down into the first couple verses of chapter 13. So Mark 12, starting in verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, what will, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he and will mislead many. Well, I feel unusually confident that this is the word that the Lord would have for us this morning for a number of reasons. The first is that I've had a fair amount of spiritual opposition in the last several weeks regarding what we're about ready to discuss together. And also because I believe we live in an age that is increasingly fixed on self, on superficial understanding, a focus on outward things. And I believe that what we're going to talk about in the time we have together exposes why most men are slaves to sin and why there may be at times a lack of unity among Christians. So I would like to talk to you today on the danger of appearance. That is, how we view ourselves, how we judge others, and how we consider ourselves before God, all limited by our own understanding or perspective. And in the first few verses, what we see is a warning from Jesus Christ against a preoccupation with self. Uh, that is invariably linked with pride and hypocrisy. And we see at the beginning here in verse 38 and onward that the scribes liked to demonstrate their superiority to others. 
And uh, the problem is not that the scribes had some form of authority. Authority is a godly attribute if it's used rightly. And we know that Paul writes in Romans 15 that there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. And Jesus Christ's ministry was, was marked by, by authority through and through. The Son of God had authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. <clears throat> and a measure of this authority was given to his disciples. And we see that in many ways and many miracles they performed. But one thing that's quite clear is that Jesus' teaching was one having authority, but it says, but not as the scribes. So what does that mean in light of this passage here? Maybe we'll just read the first couple of verses again. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets <coughs> who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So the authority of the scribes was a superficial authority. It was a, a false authority in that their position and their power among the people was based on appearance. It was <clears throat> founded on self-love, and Christ in the Sermon of the Mount goes on to call them, along with the Pharisees, he calls them pretenders, actors. He calls them hypocrites that they liked to demonstrate their position by walking in long robes. In fact, they wouldn't let anyone stand in the way of their power. They devour widows' houses. They stole from uh, people under them that were weak. They liked to be respected in the marketplaces. They liked to be the center of attention at public gatherings. And it says there in verse 40, for appearances' sake offer long prayers, not for God's sake, not for the sake of the people, but for appearances' sake. <clears throat> and I think it's interesting there, the, pos the possessive uh, nature there of, of, of that term, for appearances' sake. For, for whose sake? For their own sake, for their, their own appearance. And if you look uh, actually in chapter 14, just verse 1 and 2, now the Passover... And unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So you notice that there. So they're, they're planning murder. But they say, well, wait a second, not during the festival. I mean, that wouldn't be seemly. It wouldn't be proper. Just another time, maybe, because, you know, we don't want the people to have a negative view of us. So they're completely blinded uh, uh, by any truth. Uh, their, their motive for living is founded upon their own perspective and their own glory. <clears throat> They've collapsed inward. They don't have any other reference point other than themselves. And in fact, they, they use other people like props on a stage, arranging them just to shine light on themselves. So... At the beginning of this passage, we see we're not talking about self-examination and someone who's introspective that's collapsed inward. The Christian is called to self-examination. 
in Galatians 6.1, each one is to look to himself. That's interesting. Each one looking to yourself to avoid temptation, the context is. In 2 Peter 3.17, we're to be on our guard so that we're not carried away by the error of others. Well, how are you going to be on your guard unless you have some sense of who you are, unless you're looking down in some way? But what we see with the scribes is not self-examination. It's self-centeredness, that inward collapse that is driven by a consideration of how they look to other people. So Christ exposes the fact that the scribes and the Pharisees are hypocrites who look clean on the outside, but inwardly, says in the Sermon on the Mount, are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And he uses some pretty strong language in Matthew 23. He calls them sons of hell. And here again we see the same thing at the end of verse 40, that these will receive greater condemnation. Well, you might say this is a pretty extreme example of self-centeredness, of people who are fixated on just the outward appearance. But the application here is that if any person is looking inward at self, is seeking glory for self, it will always ultimately end in self-destruction. Destruction in hell and also in harm to others. Because once self is master, it won't allow anyone or anything to stand in the way. So Christ says here to us today, beware of the scribes. <clears throat> beware lest you're taken advantage of by a scribe and beware lest you become a scribe yourself. So the first thing we can see in this passage is that love of outward appearance is rooted in self-centeredness. Love of outward appearance is rooted in self-centeredness. Well, let's read on verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. The scribes were looking inward itself and not outward at the concerns of others, and they had collapsed inward in such an extreme way that they deceived themselves and were, were hypocrites. And here we see that Jesus reveals, though, a new problem regarding appearances, and that is the tendency for people to look at others without a Godward perspective, that is, to look outward but not upward. So we see here in this, in this account many rich people with large sums of money. And, of course, the human tendency is, well, this is something great, right? This is something to behold. This is outward success, a new house, a nice car. But this is beautiful. Everything's arranged. Things are really going well for such and such a person. But this is not the position of Scripture at all. In fact, the many rich people, uh, the, the large sums of money are passed over in this in this passage here is a nondescript mass. How many rich people were there? How many were men? How many were women? How much money was put in? 
and in what denominations were these gifts given. We don't see any of that at all. It's all pushed out of the picture. It's all brushed over. And what we are left to see instead is what God sees. We're forced to consider and to think as God thinks instead about one poor widow who puts in two small copper coins, which is about a a cent, it says, or one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage, as we would understand it. So you see all the, the detail that God is telling us that when we rely on our own visual cognitive abilities to understand people and the value of what they do, we will be very, very wrong. For this widow with two small coins, which the Holy Spirit has taken pains to describe for us, was more valuable than all the rest of the other rich people that we know nothing about. It didn't appear that she did anything. But Jesus Christ here shows that the selflessness of the poor widow who had nothing to give was valuable. She had nothing to give, but she gave it anyway. Well, they go out of the temple then in verse 13, and we'll read the first couple verses there. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So the disciples are taken back by the appearance of these wonderful buildings, these great buildings, and we get a sense of how magnificent, how imposing they must have been. But what's Christ's reply? Do you see these great buildings? Yes, they're great now, but ultimately they'll be gone. And the full significance of these structures is going to be seen in that they're absolutely nothing at all. So if we take these things together, the widow and the fixation on these great structures, we see that we may have our own opinion about the value of what other people do. We may be swayed by the appearance of people or things. But the question is, what is the basis of our judgment? What is the foundation of our knowledge? Are we being wise in our own eyes? Are we leaning on our own understanding? Do we really know all the details regarding a particular situation that's come upon us, something that's bothering us, regarding what someone has done to us that may have offended us? Are we judging according to appearance? Because if we are, we are bound to be wrong. And must remember that it only appeared that the woman with the alabaster jar had wasted the perfume. So, do we judge rightly? So we've seen so far that love of outward appearance is rooted in self-centeredness, and that love of outward appearance leads to a misperception of other people and other things. Well, the third thing we can see is that a love of outward appearance leads 
to the ultimate deception, and that is being misled by a false Christ. And we'll see that as we read on, starting in chapter 13, verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? You know, when are these structures going to be demolished? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. The passage is extensive, but uh, if we pick up at verse 22 of the same chapter, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, if any passage in Scripture should cause us to fear, it's this passage, if possible, even the elect. You think how many people today are misled by the outward appearance of a man who holds to some form of godliness, who looks Christ-like on the outside but has no power, who has no authority. How many antichrists have already gone out of this world? I started to kind of look into this and realized it was kind of a waste of time, but I'll tell you that the answer is many. Many men in prior centuries have seriously claimed to be Jesus Christ and have tried to gather for themselves a following, and I'm sure many of you here can think of a few names in the last century who have, in their teaching, taken the lives of many people. So what Christ has done so far is completely destroy the scientific approach to living. That observation and deduction will not lead to a true knowledge of ourselves, to a true knowledge of others, or to a true knowledge of God. And he's also completely destroyed the notion that we should look within ourselves or be true to ourselves or follow our own heart. I can think of no worse advice to give someone than that. But it's very, very common today. If we use our own intellect, our own senses, we will never find Jesus Christ. And that is a certainty. And I know that because of Isaiah 53, which says that Jesus Christ had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So Christ will never appeal to the flesh because he cannot be seen for who he is by natural, unregenerate eyes. One other passage I want to look at is actually in Matthew. If you turn with me there to Matthew chapter 6, as we pull things together. Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 22 and 23. Jesus said, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eyes are clear or healthy, 
your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad or evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. The eyes of the natural man are so spiritually blind <clears throat> that at times they, they don't know it. You would think that if a person would, was blind, they would realize that. But I was reminded of a patient that I had a few years ago who had had strokes to both visual cortices. And this person thought that she could see, but actually she was unaware that she was blind. It's a condition called Anton's syndrome. And I would show her various items and ask, ask her to describe them, and instead, as her face is looking right at the object before her, instead she goes into very great detail describing objects which aren't in the room at all. She was actually pulling visual imagery from her memory and was unconscious of her blindness. And we call that, <clears throat> there's a Greek word, we call that anosognosia, <clears throat> meaning, meaning that you don't know that you don't know. You're unaware of your illness. <clears throat> and that is what Christ is talking about here. He's talking about spiritual anosognosia, spiritual blindness. Men who walk around in the dark but think that they are in the light. So, you see, it is not in man to save himself, to pull himself out of the hole. If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? They're unaware, they're blind, they think things are fine, but they're in the dark. So, man cannot save himself because he doesn't even know himself. He can't even assess his own problem. So, what are we to do? Jesus says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. But all man can do is judge according to appearance. So what are we to do? Look to God. Entrust yourself to the only one who judges righteously. This is the essence of faith. And Andrew talked about this. It's a going out of ourselves, looking to God with confident conviction. This is something that involves the whole man. And if we claim to be Christians, we have to ask ourselves, what was Christ's position on all these things? He said, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something, what? He sees the father doing. See, he's looking away from self, and he is looking at the Father as his example. He said, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. At the end of things on earth, on the uh, end of his earthly life, we see that Jesus in his humanity has pain before him. He's aware of his own weakness, sinless as it was. But what is his final position in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will. Not my will, but yours be done. <clears throat> the greatest events in the history of the world are about to unfold, and Christ is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners as a sacrifice for sins. And he says <clears throat> that 
Ultimately, he is rejecting his own concept of what should or should not be based on his own understanding, and he is committing himself completely at the end to his father's will. And, of course, that was the course of his whole earthly life. He rejects everything that appears to his human mind, and he looks in faith at the trustworthy character of God. That is faith. Faith says, not my will, not what I see, not what appears to me, not what I understand of myself, but what I know is true of God concerning me, that God has promised he will not fail me or forsake me. That's Deuteronomy 31.6. So in faith, the mind is given over to the knowledge that what God says of himself is true. And the emotions follow in satisfaction by the truth. And the will surrenders the soul over in personal trust to Christ. So you see, faith encompasses the whole man, the whole person. Faith is not built on our ability to see or to apprehend knowledge but upon the trustworthiness of God. Will God help us to walk according to faith and not by sight and to beware the danger of living by appearance? I was thinking as John was sharing that he was bringing this out. It's not only the lost person that can have this condition. Would you call that condition an agnostic? Agnosia. Yeah. Well, it's the uh, the church at Laodicea had that condition, and uh, they didn't know that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. <clears throat> And Jesus says to them, they need eye salve to anoint their eyes that they may see. So we need to take this exhortation not as just something for out there others, but uh, for ourselves. May God help us.